Okay, uh, start time of our meeting is 5.40. Brenda McCake, roll call, please. Yes, I will call your name. Um, Loretta Mallon? Here. Richard Harvey Jr.? Present. Lucia Angel? Here. Neha Banger, B. Franks Walker, and Eric Murphy will not join us tonight. Mark Smith? Here. Khalil Toki will not join us tonight. Ali Yassin? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you, Brenda. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I just have a few little announcements uh, regarding, actually, they're very exciting announcements as far as I'm concerned, um, that I think are going to make a difference in our homeless community. Um, if you guys know who Senator Nancy Skinner is, she uh, was on the committee to, um, actually, her title is Budget and Fiscal Review Committee. And um, she posted, I'm, I'm on her mailing list, and she posted all the things that got passed. And there is so much money going into the homeless population. And if it's distributed and used correctly, it's going to make a huge difference. Um, the state budget added $3.4 billion to the $10 billion that they added last year. And this is to help um, house, unhoused people or people who are in danger of becoming um, unhoused. That's really exciting. And then $300 million, uh, with is going to go to assist people who are in the encampments um, and to help them get um, programs back into society, and get them their homes, get the, you know, get the mental health that they need. So that's very exciting. And then uh, our project room key, $150 million is going to that. And of course, that's, you know, that's to provide long-term housing um, for the home, homeless uh, Californians. And that's, that was during uh, COVID that that started and it's continuing, so that's a good thing. And then um, 1.5 billion to serve um, patients or people with complex behavioral problems, whether they're housed or unhoused, which is a big, big deal. And um, oh, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and this one, this one, I'm so excited about. Um, as of January first, two thousand twenty-four. Anybody, anybody, anybody will be able to get health care, whether they're documented or undocumented, whether they're one year old or whether they're 99 years old. Okay, this year they did it for, I think it was 55 and over or 65 and over, um, undocumented could come and get um, health care, but now it's going to be for everyone. So no one is left behind. So I was so excited to hear that. And I hope you guys are too. <laughs> That's all. Okay, and we do have to accept um, Khalid's uh, resignation. He moved to Oregon, I believe it is. They bought their first house. They're going to have their first baby. So, um, Kayla, is there anything special we need to do on that? 
Um, no, you just accept it as the chair. Okay. I, yes, I do accept it. Okay. And uh, let's see, can I get a motion to approve our meeting minutes from July 12th? And also to adopt the resolution authorizing remote teleconferencing meetings pursuant to AB 361. I shall move. This is Mark. I shall move. Can you second? I'll second that. Thank you. Okay. And sorry, really quick. Brenda, can you do a roll call on that? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I will call your name for the vote. Please state yes or no. Loretta Mellon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Lucia Angel? Here. Yes, I mean, sorry. Mark Smith? Yes. Ali Yesing? Yes. The motion passed. Thank you, Brenda. Okay, and um, the next item, item C, um, is uh, to review the um, application of Derek Turner. He is um, wanting to join the board. He's a, a very good friend of mine. He's had a lot of experience in a lot of different things. And um, are we looking at his uh, resume, Heather, or are we just loading him in? Well, Loretta, I have a quick question. I think we had an idea also to make a minor adjustment to the agenda. Oh, yes, yes. That's right. I have Mr. Minnell go next. Yes, so we're yeah. going to switch that. John, we're going to have John go first. Thank you, John, so much for, for joining yeah. us this evening, and we hope you're feeling better soon. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was that we were going to move him up right yeah. after the event, and then we'll get right back on the rest of the items. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, so, uh, oh, should I go ahead or is there an introduction? Okay, hold on. Okay, um, yeah, so thank you for the change in the agenda. I am technically out sick today. Uh, I think I am on the mend, but this will help us see that. Um, so uh, I was asked to present to the uh, co-applicant board on supplemental payments in Medi-Cal. This is uh, very, very closely related to my role, so I'll introduce you in a minute, and to a, a lot of future stuff that is going on that we are going to be involving the CAB in. Um, so this is, this is, to some extent, background, but there's a lot of background in these areas, uh, so we wanted to continue the work of education and uh, collaborate here. So my title is Director of Program Planning and Finance. I started in May. Uh, under Tangerine Population Health. Um, my former job before this for um, almost 11 years was at the California Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems, yeah. which, is, which is an organization of which AHS is a member. It represents the public uh, health care systems before the state and federal government um, as, as a class. My, my role here at AHS is trying to use my experience uh, to help AHS toward fiscal sustainability given a lot of the unique reimbursement structures like supplemental payments, which I worked on extensively in my previous job, as well as changes in managed care and a number of other things. So, uh, yeah, supplemental payments, I was in at the creation of some of these and 
I'm uh, I'm hoping to help AHS uh, with a lot of them. So, but I want to start with the question of what are supplemental payments? So first, we're, we're almost always, when I'm talking about supplemental payments, uh, there are others, but I'm almost always talking about Medi-Cal, and of course, is the vast bulk of our patients. And generally, you can divide payments into two types. There's the regular payments or the base payments, and that is what people see as the traditional way healthcare gets paid. You provide a service, you file a claim, there will be various requirements. There may be prior authorizations. There may be any a number of things you have to submit. And there is a payment associated with that service. That may be according to a schedule. It might be calculated some other way. Usually there is no differentiation between a public and a private facility. There may be differentiation between whether someone is a core part of the contract or not, or just their negotiating power, any number of things. But it is basically saying, we're going to pay you $20, $40, $100 for such and such service. So that's what I mean by base payment. But then when we talk about supplemental payments, those are different in several ways. There is usually no, it is usually not specific to one service, although it might reference a large number of services at once. It is usually its own special program in Medi-Cal that is saying, we are going to pay out this big pool of money based on such and such other things. And usually for our supplemental payments, they are usually supplemental payments that are by design, even written into law, these are how we pay public healthcare systems like AHS or Zuckerberg SF General or indeed the UCs. So there are a lot of difference between supplemental payments um, but there are many individual types. This is something they have in common. And importantly for AHS, supplemental payments really, really uh, outstrip are much bigger than base payments within Medi-Cal. In fact, supplemental payments are 35% of all of AHS's budgeted revenues in FY23. So they really add up. And they come across several different programs. These programs have many different characteristics, and um, I can't go through them all today. But I can uh, give some of the uh, some basic description of some of their names and amounts. And feel free to interrupt me with questions, by the way. But moving on to the next slide. So before I go into them one by one, how did we get to this point? Like, why can't we just say, pay a normal base rate? Well, in Medi-Cal, it's no secret that base payments are insufficient. Medi-Cal has been constrained as a program for a very long time, and, one of, and, and part of that is the constraint at the general fund level, the state general fund. So they have, they have over time, done everything they can, often in budget crunch times, to limit the state outlay. One of that is not keeping rates up over time. Now, you may know that Medi-Cal is a shared state-federal program. 
So usually a Medi-Cal payment is state money and federal money in some combination. But what was the genesis of supplemental payments is that it doesn't have to be the state that puts up the local match. Sorry, that puts up the match to get the federal money. It can be a local government. So it can be a county. It can be a UC. It can even be AHS as well. So it is legal federally to say we're going to take this local this local money as part of the part of the funds, and that will draw down more federal money on top of what would otherwise be available. So the benefit of de- of designing a new supplemental payment program is that you are sort of casting a spell to bring down federal money that was not there before, and without having to without the state having to lay out anything for itself. And so over the past, mostly over the 90s, 2000s, and today are when these payments proliferated, Um, really getting big in the 2000s, I would say, because that was an opportunity that was available. The state was not stepping up, and therefore the public systems were able to do it and all these supplemental payments started layering onto each other in a lot of different ways. Any questions here? Okay. What? So the justification of each payment program is different. What every supplemental is paying for is different. They have many different justifications. They come in many, even different uh, legal methods, which if I, uh, if I were to sit down and explain all the legal avenues they come from, this presentation would probably be twice as long. But I'll, I'll explain some of what they're quote for. So some of them are simply based on the Medi-Cal services. You count the Medi-Cal services in some way and that justifies more payments. An example is EPP, which is Enhanced Payment Program, which is $50 million on the first here, on the left. There are some others that are all listed in a bundle that are much smaller, AB915, PNPP, SNF Supplemental. Those are are more specifically for Medi-Cal services, is what combines them. Then, some are not for services at all. Some are for quality metrics. We have QIP, which is now up to about $40 million. Uh, and before that, if depending how long, uh, I don't know if people remember this, it was phasing out a couple of years ago. Before QIP, we had Prime, which worked similarly, and that was also very large. There's another large pot, which does not really have to be paid out based on anything in particular. It's very much at the discretion of the plans like Alliance. Alliance is notified that there's this additional money that could be paid if the, if the local match comes. There are some guardrails of how it can be paid out, but they're pretty loose. Then some of it is, even though this is all generally part of Medi-Cal, some of it is Medi-Cal paying for people who are entirely uninsured. Mm-hmm. And, and that's GPP, which stands for Global Payment Program, which you've probably heard of. And that is very large at this point. 
92 million. So again, there, it is, it is looking at services in a complicated way, but it, is, it specifically has to be services that Medi-Cal is not paying for. And finally, recently there is a graduate medical education payment, which is very much traditional hospital GME. There used to be a Medicare, there, there for a long time has been a Medicare program like this. We added on a Medi-Cal program similar to it. So, I, I, oh yes, Loretta. I, I have a question. Yeah. So is the goal here to, um, to not get supplemental payments from the states, but to get it other ways? like local and then have the, gov the federal government match it or whatever they do. Is that the goal here? I think the goal that has built up the supplemental payments has been to uh, improve reimbursement by any means necessary. So when the state was not putting in the money, that meant getting it this other way using the local match. So, you, so for example, with a local match these days, you can put up three million and get back ten, and that's a new seven. So some of it you're sort of paying to yourself in a way, you know, treating all the local governments as one. But more recently, there has been an acknowledgement that this sort of lets the state off the hook, that that the public health care systems are vital to Medi-Cal, and the state has been able to not fully invest in them over the decades, partly because of this. So there has been a desire to tamp down on how reliant we are as public health care systems on supplemental payments. And there has been some success on that. Uh, I think last year, the state released 300 million more general funds but specifically. I was just going to say that, yeah. yeah. And yeah. this was, it was partly with that After in mind. public health, yeah, right. infrastructure, supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, but, but these payments still exist and it would be very difficult for the state to replace them right now. So uh, staying on this slide, I certainly don't expect you to remember all of these details, all of these names and numbers, just to remember that they are justified many different ways and they have many different bases for how they are calculated, how they are justified, and how they come to us. That's the takeaway here. Okay. Next slide. Now, I have set aside FQHCs um, because there is something that FQs get which you could sort of call supplemental. It is sort of a special payment, a little different from what you would call base, but not exactly. And I think some of you, uh, or most of you, probably know more about this. But FQHCs have their own rate per clinic, which is not how Medi-Cal normally does it. The PPS rate, you know, the rate, looks at the clinic's own costs and is supposed to be those costs. In practice, it has ended up lower, but in principle, it is supposed to be a payment that is equal to the cost per visit. So it's different for every clinic based on its own submissions. This is, this is just for the federal federally qualified health centers, correct? I want correct. to make sure everybody understands what that FQHC is. Yes, yeah. you have to be an okay. FQHC to get this rate. And if, if, uh, if a clinic is not an FQHC, it will get much lower rates for Medi-Cal. It will get like 20 30 $40 per standard visit, I think. 
So it, it's more advantageous for the clinic to become that. Yes, right? and it was intended to be so because FQHCs have particular roles and responsibilities, mm -hmm. but it was intended to help these clinics be stable. Okay. But what's, but where this starts to look like a supplemental payment is in Medi-Cal managed care, where you aren't like you aren't just being paid a rate by the state. You're, you have to go to Alliance because Alliance is standing in for the state, Alliance or Anthem. So there, the Alliance. I'll just I'll just keep saying the Alliance. There, the plan is going to pay whatever it pays for that visit normally. So that might be a much lower amount. But FQHCs are still entitled to the PPS rate under federal law. So what we do for all these visits is we submit a report to the state saying, we, we provided this number of visits, but we only got this much money from the state, so the state needs to pay us the difference. You know, if we, got, if we provided visits that the regular rate would be 10 million, and the plans only paid us three million, we get to bill the state for seven million. And that is known as wraparound. Or said that has, is sometimes known as wraparound. Has that been happening? Oh yes, it's 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 uh, normal. Okay. Yes. Importantly, wraparound adds up, looks at all the payments that the Medi-Cal plan provides. Which is so it doesn't matter if that's a fee for service or if it's a capitated rate, as we in some cases we recently have. It just looks at whatever got paid. And it, so it's sort of like you're being paid by the same methodology, no matter what the plan does mm -hmm. in the end. So now, of course, this is also not quite like the supplementals I told you about before, in that most FQHCs are community clinics that are that are standalone and not affiliated with the public health care system. So those get PPS just like we do. So it's not a public-private thing. It's just an FQHC thing. Okay. Any questions here? Okay. So one big question I sometimes get is, are we always going to get a bunch more supplemental money if we provide more services. And the bullets here go into a lot of details. And the answer is sometimes no, usually yes. It's not very straightforward or predictable exactly how much. Overall, probably yes. So just to give some small examples, Q QIP is mostly about quality metrics. So that's not about patient count. But patient count is relevant to how much QIP you get to earn. So like, what is your 100%? That flexes up and down based on your patient count. Although that, that's unique patient count rather than touches. EPP, Enhanced Payment Program, that's one of the closest, that's one of the ones that's a lot more responsive to services because you look at all the services and you see what percentage is AHS compared to all the other public systems. So with EPP, we add up our services, and if we have 10% of the services, we get 10% of the money, whatever that is. 
but one of the side effects is that we're all sort of tied together. So if from year one to year two, our services stay the same and say, um, what would an example be? Riverside County goes up, our money goes down, even though we did the same services because we're all in the, we're all in the same dollar pool. Yeah. For global so, that's what, so San Francisco's would affect us then, right? Technically, San Francisco, there are some different sub-pools. I didn't want to get into that. We're mostly, oh, okay. not, have to. <laughs> we're mostly not in the same pool as San Francisco. That's why I said Riverside. Okay. <laughs> we, might, we, we might be in the future, but we're not right now. Okay. Um, hi, this is Mark. Yeah. I had a question. Um, based on what you just said, uh, does it not, um, despite the fact that uh, payments are made, um, for services, um, based on what you just said as an example, um, I would assume, or, or, or would I be wrong in assuming that um, by this method, it still does create uh, some inequities. Yes. In, in, in terms of uh, the way dollars are distributed, uh, despite the fact that one other hospital may have, uh, both hospitals may have the same uh, services, um, but the need isn't any less greater than one other hospital uh, in comparison. Uh, is that enough for them to simply say this hospital should get more money, uh, supplemental money, as opposed to another? Yeah, I would say most of these programs were designed with an eye to what the federal government would approve. So that usually means simplifying it in one way or another. And so, yes, usually it means that you are simplifying away some of the need. Yes. So there will be inequities that persist. Now, are they the same inequities in every program? No. They might work in different ways. But yes, usually they will be highly imperfect, we can expect. Well, here's my other question. Um, in making such a decision, um, and the fact that they realize and they already know uh, within the system that there's going to be inequities, uh, you know, I, I guess what I, uh, I guess what bothers me is uh, supplemental. The supplemental should pay for uh, the needs of any hospital that that needs the money. Period, uh, and that um, it should not be. Um, as part of an outcome, it should not be tolerated, uh, um, no matter the method used, uh, should never be th that uh, the outcome should be that uh, there is an, in an inequity. I think that's correct. And I that think we that are, are we butt up against the issue of how much funding are we able to get overall. We have usually been in the situation of it being extremely difficult to get the amount of money in total that matches the total need. So then the question is, how do you distribute insufficient money? And that is all. That is often that sometimes the state sit, sitting in and making some of those very imperfect decisions. In some cases, it has been the public hospitals as a group sitting down with each other via CAPH, in fact, and making making some agreements on how how they will mutually distribute this insufficient money. 
So yeah, so yeah, it comes down to responding to that state of insufficiency. Well, in that case, in that case, are are we actively, aggressively talking to other hospitals uh, in making in trying to make uh, make a an agreement or create an agreement between uh, ourselves and our separate networks uh, as to how that money would be distributed and who needs it most? Number one. And number two, uh, um, currently, um, is there any system in place to actually track from year to year um, the uh, money that we do not receive? Uh, Not money we receive, but money that we do not receive. I think it's important to know exactly um, from year to year what we don't get and what we are getting. So one of the reasons I was hired was to help get a handle on these supplemental payment programs in order to improve our performance on them as well as our distribution of them. So usually if we don't earn money, usually if what generically if one hospital doesn't earn money, that often but not always leads to another hospital getting it redistributed. So part of the work that we have to do is making sure that we earn Uh, everything that we are entitled to. But then there is also the bigger strategic question of improving the overall pot of how much everyone is entitled to. And then there is tracking, you know, how much is everyone getting versus what they need. And so that, I I would say those discussions go on primarily, uh, well, what I'm aware of, where that goes on is the CAPH level, because I used to work there, and that is, and that is uh, the board, uh, their board of directors, uh, where all the um, uh, CEOs are represented. Um, and depend, it's used to be every five years, but it's gotten more irregular. It depends on when programs are changing. There's usually an evaluation that looks at costs, looks at historical revenues, looks at what's changing. It's, it, it is a very complicated question of what, how do you define need? Is it costs? Is it units? Is it patients? Is it, is it medical? Is it uninsured? Lots, every hospital can add up its own statistics in ways that show they are. Well, let me ask you another question. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any uh, is there any study uh, in making these decisions? Is there any study um, in, in trying to make uh, into, into making those determinations? Uh, is there any uh, dis- uh, look at uh, the efficiency in which these funds are used by whatever hospital is awarded these funds? I'm not aware of that. Do you think, do you personally think that it would be important to know um, as part of the decision-making process about who receives these supplemental funds about the efficiency in which those funds are used? what Mark's asking, doesn't all this determine whether at the end of the fiscal year we come out in the black or we come out in the red? Isn't that basically what this is telling us? Uh, to a large, it's a large part of it, yes. Yeah. I'm not sure what you're getting at, Loretta. Well, I'm just but thinking, um, these, these, um, 
pro-rata, you know, among all the public care systems. Um, who, who, who comes up with that, <laughs> you know? Um, it is usually, it is a combination of, it is usually very specific to how the program works and what the federal government will accept. Sometimes that has really overridden any considerations of what is the most reasonable way to do it because there are only a few ways that will be approved. QIP and EPP are a great example. There were some other programs that had to be terminated in 2018 because of a new regulation the federal government put out. The new regulation listed three, three ways they would put out money under in the managed care world. And we made programs that corresponded to each of those three ways, according the federal government said. Mark, I guess I would say to your, what I would say to your question about efficiency, which is a good one, is that usually these payments have been founded in an atmosphere, in an environment of trying to, of trying to keep systems stable. It has not been where we have this new money, how are we going to use it? Usually it's, it's, it's public health care systems that have, uh, you know, that have a hole they need to fill. And, and a lot of the stuff has been replacing older revenues um, in, new way, in new ways to keep up the revenues. So it's a little difficult to, so that's why I have trouble answering your question because when you're saying how is it used, it can be difficult to say how is this, mo this money used versus this money because it sort of all flows into uh, one pot from a lot of places' perspectives. One other qu uh, quick question. Um, uh, the board that you referred to uh, earlier that, that makes these decisions, mm -hmm. how, is that board, how is that board comprised and uh, are, they, are they appointed and if so, by whom? Or are they elected in some, some fashion? Uh, how, is the, how is the board um, made up? Uh, the CAPH board represents all the CAPH members. CAPH is a nonprofit. It doesn't have any formal authority um, in how these decisions are made. It is usually merely, rec no, it is pretty much always merely rec making recommendations to the state. Um, but yeah, but it represents, um, yeah, represents every public health care system in the state. And there are 21 of them. Okay, well, in that case, if, if they only make recommendations, who actually who actually um, makes the decision, final decision? The state. Uh, so the state, sometimes the, the federal government, which is to say the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Okay. Okay, yeah. But the state is usually uh, proposing things for CMS to approve. Sometimes that is very, sometimes that gets to the level of governor and even president. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's kept to a more bureaucratic level, like the director of healthcare services and the administrator of CMS. Okay, thank you. And I think that does get us, oh, but uh, to our next slide, but um, are there any other questions here? Because I know this one's very involved. Okay. So most of these programs involve a lot of data. So, and because the programs, even if they are not technically per for a given service, it's not like a dollar amount for a service, it often still requires you to be able to summarize the services based on data 
And if you don't have all the data for the services, that could miss out supplemental payments. So what I've heard of in the past, not at not AHS specifically, but in general, is that you can have hospitals where they're where pursuing payment on something is seen as not a priority because it's not a very large payment. But then the people working on that in the back office don't know that it might correspond to something much larger via a supplemental payment. Okay, next slide. So, uh, these payments uh, do usually need federal approval, and sometimes that expires quickly. Sometimes they need approval every year. Some of them need approval every five years. Um, I mentioned the documentation. I didn't mention that sometimes the documentation is a different standard of documentation than the base payment requires. And although some of them feel more bureaucratic and some of them feel more political, I would say they're all political in some sense because they are supplemental payments that have as the foundational idea the public health care systems are crucial to the safety net and therefore need special attention. And that and that and that is bolstered by that is bolstered when the state and federal governments can see that the public health care systems are doing good and innovative work. Because, you know, historically, the lobbying, the lobbying uh, mode was to say, we're vital, we can't be cut, uh, everything will collapse. And more recently, there has been a turn to say, here's how we are adding value, here's how we are changing things, here's how we are moving toward better health care for everyone. So now, so now with, um, by 2024, no one will be without health insurance whether they're documented or not, that's going to throw a big, that's going to affect this, correct? Well, I think there are some income-based ways people may be left out because the expansion in Medi-Cal still has an income limit, even if it's no longer restricted. Yes, right. yes, that's correct. That's how it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but, but, that's, a, but that's, a very, that's a very good point that, for example, we, we have been saying, look, we care for so many uninsured people. And... Mm -hmm. um, and as uninsured decline, that does, yes, reduce the ability to um, argue for money based on treating the uninsured. Like, as, like the GPP is all based on uninsured and it's 92 million and it's chasing a smaller and smaller number of uninsured days and visits. Um, so, they, so one way that the community comes together to make this, uh, to help this keep working is when a waiver needs renewal, that that is when a whole lot of politics comes in. A whole, you know, talking to congressional delegations, talking to everyone we can, in order to keep in order to keep the money flowing. Um, in the case of the Trump administration, we were able to um, get some get some one one or two year extensions, which let. Uh, which ended up letting some of the decisions be made by the Biden administration, which was helpful. Um, but there was, uh, but, so you, you have these two things together of showing, showing 
uh, showing the need for the money and showing the value of the money. So that's so it's not just about getting pulling down these dollars. You know, I talked about filling a hole. There is that way to look at it, but there is also the 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 real truth that when you're getting money based on quality metrics, that does let you show better quality, better results, better okay. outcomes for your patients, and that helps justify the funds, justify more funds in the future. Okay. So they aren't just excuses for pulling down the money; they are real goals. Well, um, this is Mark again. Um, uh, that being the case. Um, Referring back earlier to something you said, and I could have misinterpreted what you said, but you were talking about also uh, one of the reasons a hospital could miss out on some uh, on funds uh, is uh, that there's not a uh, that uh, there's some hole in the data. In other words, the data uh, the data provided is uh, incomplete. And uh, my question is. Um, Given what you know about AHS, uh, how would you or would you dare uh, grade from, say, A to F what the actual overall reporting level is for AHS? Because here's, the, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking if we do have inefficiencies in terms of providing the necessary data to make sure uh, that we're competitive in receiving those funds, uh, and we're not providing enough data, or we've we've in the past had data that, in in their eyes, is uh, is, is lacking. Um, have we or are we in the process of trying to improve uh, actual um, uh, provide uh, providing that uh, that missing data? Are we uh, are we are we efficient in um, putting together a, a cogent um, data report uh, that covers all aspects of care in which uh, uh, these payments are an integral part? Um, that is one of my roles. Uh, I am working on a lot of these pay programs to identify um, what, uh, what we need to be doing and how that is tracking against the actual and what we can do to uh, and what we can do to maximize. Okay. Isn't that the benefit of the electronic health record? Also, doesn't that um, allow you to document much better than before? Uh, creates a lot more potential. Yes. Um, yeah. Pretty much everyone is on EHR now, so yeah. it, create, it creates new uh, barriers um, in some of the time. Uh, depending, yeah, a <laughs> good point, Damon. Higher expectations, yes. Yeah. So, like, like a good example of the higher expectations as EHR has come on board. Um, there used to be programs where we simply certified our uncompensated costs for a certain set of patients. Um, in Crete now, one of the one of the aspects of EPP is that our data in standard format. Um, UBO4 or CMS1500 or their electronic equivalents has to not only go to the plan, but then the plan has to submit that to the state, and the state has to accept that by their own standards, which are actually higher than the plans. Um, and weirdly, they accept they require different code sets, so it adds more 
work to harmonize everything and get it to the point where it will be counted to your EPP. So yeah, uh, they, there is more and more expected as the, as the data capabilities improve. And QIP, of course, has created some data lists too. Okay, but so but you would but you would say. Overall, you would say uh, that overall data reporting um, could be improved or there should be improvements made in data reporting as it currently stands. Yes, I'm pretty confident it could be improved. Okay. And, and uh, with that in mind, uh, do you have recommendations or, uh, are it, or, is sub, or is this an issue that is still being investigated as to uh, basically, how to uh, make that happen? Still being investigated. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Repeat that. I said still. I said it's still being investigated. I say okay. Thank you. Okay. I think there's more, or is that the last slide? Oh yeah, that was the last slide. So yeah, so I will summarize. Yeah, the supplemental payments are a very big part of AHS's work. Um, the, one one big question is how do you oh, how do you align uh, a lot of the standard processes in ways that are not ridiculously cumbersome for the for the individual staff, but are also you know getting us proper credit for the services we do provide. And how are they driving us forward toward making sure that in 2026, when the current waiver expires, we will be able to show all the great things that, de that uh, deserve a renewal or indeed an increase. And of course, I'm not the only person working on these. There's uh, great work on a part of all the people who have stuff to do with QIP, for example. There's been a lot on that, but um, yeah, it's a lot uh, to get our arms around. Um, I, uh, I, one thing I want to say is, uh, is that uh, I, I hope that uh, you will come back um, and address our uh, board again because uh, I like, I like to see follow-ups in terms of what's being done to correct our data situation and and how we can improve reporting and um, and and find out how that's going or 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 whatever recommendations may come out of your investigation I would love to hear. Oh so yeah. And John, are, are we like your first slide showed, are we trying to again, totally wean out the state and just rely on local funds? No, we think, I would say most of us in this world who are steeped in this uh, think that the state has a responsibility it has not been meeting. Ideally, the state would greatly increase our rates to bring us more up to parity. Ideally, the state would increase rates to Medi-Cal across the board to bring it closer to Medicare and other payers. That would eliminate the need for a lot of this if not all, but we don't see that, we don't know when that's going to happen, so this is what we do, our imperfect solution. Yeah, well, I know the federal government sets the, the payment amount for Medicare, 
when you look at those, it's so unrealistically there. You know, you've got a three thousand dollar bill, and Medicare pays three hundred dollars. You know, and and that's right. what the hospital has to accept. You know, yeah, and that's, so it's not it's not yeah it's not realistic really, right? By any means. Right. Medicare, there's commercial. Like, what would be what would be the appropriate rate if there were a single payer? I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that that's clearly identified yet. Yeah. Hi, John. I had a question around. Uh, if are you looking it at where gaps exist by like type of payment? Or are you looking at it by department, like, you know, departments across HS? Like, what are sort of different ways that you're looking at, you know, addressing what our gaps are as HS? Um, and um, are there any yeah. particular gaps you have seen in the homeless health care system? Um, hold on just a second. Mm-hmm. Just, just plugging in. Um, so... I have not I have not gotten to the point of of having uh, specific results yet. I know that, for example, one thing um, you know we have a global payment program budget, and usually, but in pre-pandemic and post, we have not been earning that whole budget. So, as an example, that raises questions of. Are we accounting for everyone who is uninsured under the federal definition, which is not what uh, is, un- is not the same as uninsured in most people's uh, understanding? Uh, it's a little complicated. Um, so some of that could be how we're uh, collecting data on on our uninsured services. Some of it might be how we're sorting different payers. But I would say generally to your question, I am, I am starting with the payment program mm-hmm. and zooming in on what what is not getting through, and, and only from there do I go to the department level. Okay. Um, an, another example of the process is that I have been uh, setting up uh, meetings with Alameda Alliance for Health because they are going, with EPP, they are going to know if data is not getting through to the state the way it needs to, what uh, what what is the deficiency? Because they have some of these data tools to tell them why did the state reject it? Only they can tell us. Mm-hmm. So those are some examples of what of what you get to. One more question. I believe Alameda Health System is beginning the process of, of expanding the contracts you have with um, other um, to accept, um, you know, private insurance. I believe. Um, does that affect this in any way, or how you get funding from these programs? Um, um, so, based on my under my understanding. I, I probably shouldn't speak to my, uh, those particular contract changes, um, mm-hmm. but I would say that usually uh, this does not look at commercial revenue, no, or commercial uh, utilization. To the extent it looks at utilization, it is almost always Medi-Cal or uninsured. Medi-Cal or uninsured. Yeah. 
meta cow can also be under one of those uh, under contract with like say Blue Cross Anthem Blue Cross, right? Which is also a, a, a public. Oh. You know what I mean? Yes, I would distinguish medical managed care, which can be under various plans, including private plans contracted by the state, like Anthem. Uh -huh. So, so that that I would consider medical. So medical okay. Anthem Blue Cross, that's medical. Okay. Uh, whereas Anthem Blue Cross through uh, someone's job. Yeah. That uh, that is that is commercial. And completely different coverage and everything. Yeah. Yes, very different payment standards and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This was very interesting, John. I really enjoyed it. Glad to hear. Yeah, I and I hope, to be, uh, I hope to be uh, coming to you again with uh, more things. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you giving your time, Lena. You didn't feel well. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John. And thanks again for your rearrangement. Okay. No problem. Uh, I also just wanted to, to highlight that. Um, in our strategic plan, the second um, goal for the, the Homeless Health Center is to ensure um, that, that we're sustainably supporting the revenue and the infrastructure for the programs that we have and the ones that we want to expand. And one of the milestones underneath that was having more internal staff um, at AHS dedicated to working on that. And so John has just been like an, a huge gift and, you know, Heather and I are getting to collaborate with him in a number of ways, um, just, you know, just in, in the couple months since he's been here um, and, uh, and really looking forward to, to working together more. So, you know, it's really been responsive to the thing that, that we wanted to see when we um, adopted our strategic plan earlier this year. And hopefully that will, you know, translate into us being able to figure out how yeah. to grade the priorities we have for drop-in mm -hmm. services, for follow-up with what these supplemental programs are, you know, right. are allowed to do. Um, so just um, just wanted to draw that connection that, you know, um, John is really the, the person who's embodying, you know, that goal that we had to, to add some more mm -hmm. financial expertise and bring that to us as a co-applicant board um, as much as anyone else. We, we get a lot of support from Kim's team and from others in the organization as well, and that's going to continue to be important um, also.
that's uh, specifically around um, the cabs area. Okay. There are, there are things I'm working with, I'm working with uh, you all on, of course. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So Heather and I will, will continue to be the conduit there. And, um, you know, we have our regular agenda planning meetings with Loretta. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll, we'll balance sort of when, when you all want to hear about something and when we have something that we want to tell you about and, and try to make sure those things match up. But, but I imagine John will make fairly regular guest appearances, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, moving forward. Okay. Management, my 
mindful mood management classes, and again, the CHC. <laughs> and then for volunteer experience, he replies, I've worked with the homeless community in downtown Oakland and 12th Streets. I've referred clients to various health care agencies, shelters, along with drug treatment um, agencies. So he, he has had a lot of experience in, I would say, the patients that our clinic treats, okay? And, and I think that's a pretty important thing um, for a, a lot of different reasons, and maybe even what he could do in different areas with all his knowledge. So does anybody have questions about him or comments or doubts or... I personally have none. I just was uh, curious about the background of the of the applicant, and um, uh, I, I'm I'm certainly satisfied with the information provided. He's an African American gentleman. Hi, Loretta, um, Loretta. Um, oh. Sorry to interrupt you, but just like Heather said, something oh, yes. okay. confidential. So the only thing that we're sharing publicly again are these three things, and his name that Heather has shown on the screen. Yes. Other than that, sorry, Kina. Yeah, no problem. Well, with that, shall we move for a vote? I think Dr. Francis was saying something. I was just going to say something noting Khalil's departure that I think um, he brings really similar, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, experiences and skills uh, as, as Khalil brought. Um, and so, um, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's relevant to, to this conversation, too. Very much so, yeah. Good. Any other comments or questions before we take a vote? Uh, first, we'll need a motion, which you can make or any other cab member can make, and the motion would be to elect um, Derek. Make a motion to elect Derek Turner for our CAB membership. I'll second that motion. I second it. Thank you, Mark. And then, Brenda, would you mind taking a vote on that motion, please? Yes. I will call your name for the vote. Please say yes or no. Loretta Mallon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Lucia Angel? Yes. Mark Smith? Yes. Ali Yesing? Yes. The motion passed. Great, thank you. Um, okay, our next uh, report is from our medical director. Thanks so much. Uh, I wanted to just talk about two items. Um, the first is monkeypox, and we have uh, my colleague, fortunately, on uh, Lucy Kasdan from uh, Healthcare for the Homeless in the County, who I think can fill out a lot of the um, a lot of additional details. Um, we have uh, within our clinics um, started. Um, really piloting workflows to, to figure out how our entire, um, um, you know, homeless health center and health center more broadly is going to have the capacity to, um, to see patients. Um, 
the initial testing workflows were quite challenging because they all had to go to the public health department. But um, just over the last few weeks, Quest um, Lab has started offering lab and our turnaround times have gone down and the workflows have gotten much simpler, which is great. Um, we are, um, we just received actually our first um, uh, treatment doses um, at our pharmacy. So we're soon going to be able to treat people who have, you know, really um, severe disease um, internally, which is great news. Um, and then we're starting a, a task force across the organization led by Dr. Minnie Swift, who's also led our COVID vaccine efforts um, to, to make sure that, you know, inpatient, emergency room, outpatient, we're all coordinated around how we're addressing uh, monkeypox um, in our community and, and among our patients. Um, my uh, medical director at AIC, where I practice, um, has been, you know, a key leader as well in just developing the workflows and, and collecting the information uh, that's out there and making sure that we're ready to go. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty um, just excited about how we've learned a lot from COVID, how we've kind of used the same structures um, to respond to this, you know, um, in, a, in a pretty... Um, um, kind of efficient and, and good way. I've seen a couple patients myself in clinic um, and, and, you know, felt pretty comfortable and confident that we're, we're providing state-of-the-art care for monkeypox at our, at our clinic. Um, I'll let Lucy speak to what's going on community-wide among the homeless population with monkeypox, and she has a lot more of that information, and then um, I'll be happy to take any questions about that or about what's going on in the Alameda Health System. But Lucy, can you, do you mind just sharing a little bit about the monkeypox uh, um, response countywide yeah, among people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. And hello, everybody. Happy to be here again with you all. Um, and I just, just want to start with echoing exactly what Damon said. Really, um, so much of the foundation, uh, we're really leveraging all the learning and all of the networks that have been put in place through COVID has really been helpful in us being able to respond so quickly. Um, in terms of kind of where we are right now with confirmed cases among the homeless population, my, uh, the cases I'm aware of, and I believe that's all of them, are five. So the number is still very low. Um, we have worked in coordination um, on every single one of those situations. And um, I think there are a couple things I just want to highlight. One is that we have worked to be able to expand the isolation quarantine capacity that we have for COVID-19, which has continued now for two and a half plus years. Um, we've been able to expand that on a case-by-case -case basis for individuals who are confirmed to have monkeypox and don't have a safe place to isolate. And so we have, I believe, two people right now. So it's a very small number of people. Um, and at times, uh, other factors in terms of somebody's health, we've determined um, that a respite is actually a better space for them. So I think there are also mm -hmm. benefits in terms of being able to bring people in and provide kind of greater depth of care to more, uh, you know, beyond the monkeypox. Um, we are working very closely with public health on coordinating our response. This this last week, the, uh, the director of infectious disease for Alameda County came and presented to our community. We had over 200 people join that call. So really having that space weekly to provide that information for people to come and receive updates. We launched also at the end of last week, our monkeypox page and have really been working on guidance specifically for homeless providers. And I think most notable are for shelters where there's some slightly different um, precautions around laundry and different things, different considerations from COVID. 
um, but really want to make sure that we have that resource and that we're working and, um, to to respond to those um, to you know that we're able to really get that um, information quickly out to our community. We are also working with our street health teams, our teams that go out and provide care directly out of encampments across the county. Some are already there, and some are working right now in consultation with public health in supporting them and developing their um, testing guidance so that we're able to expand the ability for folks to receive testing um, and not, uh, you know, for folks that um, there are going to be barriers for them coming um, indoors for that. And then, uh, you know, to clinics or um, to the ED. And obviously, we also don't want to clog up the ED with folks that we can serve elsewhere. And then also really tracking and working on as the vaccine access expands, as, as Damon was noting, really making sure that we are working on um, helping folks who are at highest risk access the vaccine. Um, I, the last thing I want to say, and then I'll turn it back over to Damon, is I do think that uh, the it is one of the interesting things that I've noted, and again, five people, so very small sample size so far, but it's certainly these are folks that in general, well, one of the five, um, but for the most part, these are folks that aren't necessarily connecting with our healthcare system other places. Um, that, you know, these are uh, folks that have engaged, you know, these, uh, and so I think there's a real opportunity for us to connect with them, but also I think it really charges us to think about what are our strategies for engaging folks that, for example, uh, most of the cases have been folks who were more couch surfing and probably um, to, and, and my understanding is to some degree, you know, um, at times, right, folks exchange sex for a place to stay or, you know, or, or you know, um, other risky behaviors. So it is, we have seen a different profile in terms of more of the couch surfing as opposed to who we often work with. So I think we're really thinking about what are strategies to target those folks and other populations that may be um, at higher risk. For example, the youth shelters and programs that we work in where our youth are, um, you know, may also be engaging in, in uh, you know, higher risk behavior and may have less access to education on this. And so really trying to um, be really thoughtful and targeted on our response as we ramp up. Lucy, can, I don't know if you can answer this or if Damon needs to. What is the actual um, quarantine time? Is it until all the actual blisters are healed up mm -hmm. or how is that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I'll turn it over to Damon for the more technical piece, but I think one of the pieces that, so it can be up to like four plus weeks. And mm -hmm. so this also for us in terms of just the typical length of stay and kind of uh, the flow through isolation mm -hmm. quarantine as it relates to COVID, this we may have people who stays double. So I think in terms of the length of time that somebody in terms of exactly their lesion, you know, them being in a place where they're able to um, um, no longer isolate. So I think that's that's a challenge in terms of capacity, yeah. but also the ability, you know, isolating. And I'm sure many of us have done it with COVID. Isolating is really, really challenging for folks. And so thinking about spending a month in a hotel room. Um, and, you know, and, and so, um, you know, all of these things. So I, I think that's a great question just in terms of on the program side. And then I'll definitely turn it over to David for the medical answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. Yeah, I, medically, I think 
you guys both stated it, when all the lesions are healed and, you know, covered over with, with skin um, is when is when you're done. And that can take, you know, up to several weeks. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I'll, I'll take the liberty of adding something on the program side, which is that isolation for monkeypox is different than isolation for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually much easier to keep yourself from spreading monkeypox to other people than it is to keep yourself from spreading COVID to other people. Um, really simply covering your lesions with clothes and not breathing the same air as someone else for three hours really would keep anyone around you from being from being made a contact of someone with, with uh, monkeypox. So I think we need to keep that in mind, you know, especially as Lucy said, four weeks of, you know, being alone in a hotel room is um, not a pleasant yeah. thing for, for anyone mostly. Um, but it's also probably not necessary for monkeypox mm-hmm. isolation. And we're going to, you know, learn as we go about how how that intersects with the various um, living situations that, you know, that people experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity find themselves in. Are there yeah. rapid tests like there was with COVID? No. The test can take, and I think that's what Dame was talking the test can still take three, four days, depending on the lab, to receive results. So there is this period of time. Um, mm-hmm. but between the results, and so you know, making sure that um, that healthcare providers, you know, that there's a plan to stay in touch with that person um, okay. during that period is really important. And I want to echo what Damon said. And I've been spending the last two weeks just kind of saying we need to turn the temperature down. I think there's a lot of feeling, you know, there's a lot of emotion. It's in the media. You turn on the news in the morning, you see 300 people standing in line, and and I think yeah. people think about, of course, COVID. Um, and so that's part of where I've been really trying to say, first and foremost, this is about educating our community about, yes, how to stay safe, but this is not, you are not going to get this standing in line at Target, right? Or going to, you know, like, I think the thing's right. I mean, and just like how we all, you know, wiped down every box of cereal that came into our house two years ago, we're not doing that. <laughs> you know, we've learned about COVID, and so I think that, this, again, People associated with COVID, so I think that that's where again people you know think that that's the level of precaution. But we've also learned how to bring people together. People understand, and I think can engage more around um, educating themselves around monkeypox. So we've been really trying to educate people about exactly what Damon said. Actually, how what what you know what is your risk if you have somebody at a site who has monkeypox or is suspected of having monkeypox how do they stay safe how do other people stay safe but you're not going to get it in the elevator with them right yeah Uh, and so i think that 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 piece and and you know having a proportional response in terms of our allocation of resources is really really important um damon this is mark um one of the questions i have is kind of a selfish kind of question um but um, because of uh, the campaign that um, AHS launched uh, regarding the homeless uh, with COVID and making sure that homeless people that did not have uh, vaccinations for COVID got vaccinated. And in some cases, uh, some people might have received, for instance, uh, the Moderna vaccine um, which required them to take it in two shots, not just one single shot. And then, of course, you had on top of that uh, two boosters that were authorized uh, at, a, at a later date and time. 
and let's just say for argument's sake, let's say for argument's sake, uh, all those people did receive the booster as well, and maybe even a second booster, um, but they, but these people also have other underlying uh, physical ailment, ailments. And my question is, is that, um, to your knowledge, or has there been any research done about whether or not a mo monkeypox vaccine affects or retards the effectiveness of a COVID vaccine and its booster? And would that also uh, would be a question if at a later date, uh, because of underlying medical conditions, the same homeless person uh, would also uh, would be uh, would be told that for the for uh, for their benefit and for their safety, it would be important because of underlying conditions that they also this fall would receive a flu shot. Is there any indication, or has there been any uh, medical uh, research as to whether or not uh, any other vaccines that you might take on board? Um, that are not monkey, like fl the flu shot, two booster shots, and the the the, the sole um, implementation of a of a COVID nineteen shot. Whether or not uh, any of these drugs would be retarded in the body, uh, or would there be other complications unforeseen in taking on board a monkeypox vaccine? Hey, Mark. Sorry, I'm going to stop Dr. Kranz from answering that. I think that's a little bit speculative and beyond the scope of the medical director report. Um, okay. I think it's a little bit beyond the agenda item, but thank you for posing the question. I okay. Like it would be great to answer it here. Okay. Yeah, what I will say is just programmatically around monkeypox, which I think is related to, to the question and to the agenda item, you know, as Lucy said, there's a lot of opportunity to engage people in healthcare, including other vaccinations, and so we're gonna we're gonna need to work out a lot of complexity over time, and and we'll see that we'll you know we'll see that happening. I think as this evolves. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Damon. Um, any more questions on monkeypox? I just wanted to mention one more thing in the in the medical director report, um, mm -hmm. but. Uh, wanted to pause on monkeypox in case there was anything else first. All right, the, the other thing I wanted to mention, um, and just sorry, thank you again to Lucy. So glad that she joined us again uh, this month and can really fill in some of the gaps for me. It's always great to have her here. Um, so the second thing I wanted to mention was just that the state adopted in July um, something called the Data Exchange Framework which is actually a really big deal. Um, I think it, it goes along with other pretty large changes that are coming in uh, 2024, um, you know, including what you mentioned, uh, um, uh, Loretta, about the expansion of, of coverage for um, people who are currently uninsured. You know, here in Alameda County, we're gonna go to a single plan most likely, to Alameda Alliance being the single managed Medi-Cal plan and, and most Medi-Cal patients being on Alameda Alliance. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gonna be a really big thing around how we coordinate care here. So the data exchange framework, which was just uh, formally um, put forward by the state and, and will be a required agreement among healthcare, public health, and social services providers for how to share data 
um, is going to go into effect actually in January 2024 also. And the idea is that any provider in healthcare or in public health or in social services will be able to see all the relevant data they need in order to provide whole person care. So we'll have more access to housing data on the healthcare side. The housing providers will have more access to health data through this mandated agreement that every healthcare provider um, and many other public health providers and social services providers are going to be required to uh, agree to to use in the exchange of data. So our county has been wow. at the forefront of this. I think we've mentioned in our um, you know, SWOT analysis, for example, one of the assets or strengths that we have in our county is, is CareConnect and the Social Health Information Exchange and you know, some of these mechanisms for, for sharing data. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, this is still gonna, gonna mandate a lot of new work for us and I think is gonna, is gonna help us particularly with our third strategic goal of ensuring that we're constantly following up on primary care and on housing in every setting where patients come because we're gonna now have to share that data with others and others are gonna have to share that data with us. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that the data exchange framework um, for you all. There's a lot more time between you know now and January 2024 when when we're mandated to use it and it becomes a reality. But it is just uh, another kind of milestone on the path to this this future where our um, public health, healthcare, and social services systems are much better integrated. Yeah, that's great. Um, Damon, I did want to ask you one question too. Um, what John was mentioning, um, the public health infrastructure. Um, got that $300 billion, and because um, it can be allocated to the state or it can, that, you know, you live in or it can be allocated to the county, um, are we going to see any of that money because we do work with um, Alameda County Public Health? I don't know. I can, I can look into that and, and get back to you. I was kind of hoping maybe, you know, maybe, right? I, it depends on how big the we is. You know, I'm, I'm sure yeah, someone in Alameda County is, and those of us who serve people experiencing homelessness, I think we're increasingly, you know, um, through things like the data exchange framework, you know, partnering with each other in more and more formal ways, more and more consistent ways. And so I do, I do think that, you know, similarly to how I think of we, including, you know, communicable disease control as the people who responded to COVID, who presented to all the homeless service providers, right? on the call that Lucy hosted last week. Like, <laughs> I do think that funding is likely to support that larger we, um, and yeah. that it will, it will matter for the population that we serve. I hope so. But I can get back to you more on the, on the specifics. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Um, that's the end of my report, so happy to turn it over back to you. Um, Brenda, can you scroll up, please, to the next page?
Thank you so much, Brenda. She's right on it. So what we're looking at each time we meet is what's happening for the year. And we're seeing um, relative consistency for how many patients we have. Remember this 3,572 patients, this number is constantly changing whenever we run the report. The next day it's going to change because we're always looking, thank you, um, we're always looking at who's added and who's taken away because the information is just for one year. Sure. Then if we go on to the next one, um, this will show you over time, right? So it shows August 2021 through July, how many patients we're seeing in each of these departments. I feel like I'm seeing a color coding thing that I didn't notice previously, in which case I apologize. We probably updated it and uh, the colors make a change on us midstream. So um, <laughs> the top line is specialty care, that's the orange line at the top, and the next one is primary care, and after that um, is usually uh, Eastmont. So I'm not sure, and I apologize for not noticing that there was an error in this report. So uh, just in the in the um, the keys. Do you want to go on to the next one, Brenda? Oh, here we go. I'm thinking that the the the, the key got uh, misplaced from the department between the department and the people. So I'll double check that next time when we uh, report it out. Here are the number of visits that we're having in each department. So our primary care across our system, our specialty care across our system, urgent care, use uh, clinic, dental, mobile health, and behavioral health, and that's for a full year. Does that include uh, video visits and phone yeah, visits? Yeah, this, this includes telehealth um, as well as in-person visits. They're okay. all combined. Can you go to the next slide? All right, here we go. See, now I've got our colors on. <laughs> <laughs> it helps me. Um, so primary care, there you go, is that purple line. The specialty is the um, hot pink line. Our substance abuse department is the next line. And we've got our urgent care. And remember that dip in urgent care is related to vaccination. So that's where we're seeing a downward trend for urgent care. And you'll see an upward trend in our behavioral health. Are you guys noticing that? That is so awesome. Yep. That's good news. Yes, it is. Um, the next slide is our uh, just our basic statement of what it is we're working on. Um, much of it is remaining the same where we're uh, juggling multiple responsibilities. I know that Damon was talking a little bit about using the infrastructure that we have in place for um, uh, COVID vaccinations, also for monkeypox. And so you will see an update on this next time. I've been working with the group on the COVID vaccinations, and now that uh, monkeypox is being rolled into some of the Alameda Health System structures as well. And so that committee will be both um, COVID vaccinations and monkeypox vaccines. So I'll be supporting that. We have some practice manager uh, changes that are also happening 
Um, Gary Blake was our practice manager for Eastmont Wellness Center. Prior to that, he'd been our practice manager for Hayward Wellness Center, and he's recently resigned from Alameda Health System and moving on to another position. Um, also, our Highland P6 primary care um, practice manager, Yvonne Spedalieri, is also leaving. She uh, is leaving August 19th, so we have two. Uh, primary care, I'm sorry, practice managers who are leaving us at this month. Oh, boy. Uh, we also had already our Hayward Wellness Center was also an open position. Um, so we have several open positions. If you know any fabulous practice managers, certainly send them our way. But um, with the lack of practice managers within our wellness centers right now, it means that our system leaders are really drawn on to do a lot of coverage in these areas. Right now, the Eastmont Wellness Center is being managed um, at, with an interim practice manager, Maritza Brown. She's been with Alameda Health System for a very long time. She is a fabulous uh, services supervisor, so she is, is supporting that team very strongly right now while we uh, seek out a permanent practice manager. Good news also, our Associate Medical Officer for Ambulatory Care is coming uh, this month as well, so I will likely be meeting them at a future meeting next month, if not the following. I'm hoping that we can get uh, get her to, to join us. And that announcement, I think, will be coming through Alameda Health System email. Probably in the next 10 days. If it doesn't happen within the next 10 days, she would already have had her first day. So. <laughs> yeah. Say with confidence. I'm speculating, <laughs> Kayla, but I can say with confidence. There'll be an email within the next 10 days. Any questions? Heather, can I just add the link yeah. breaker around uh, our um, longtime medical director at Newark Wellness Center, um, Jacob Epen, um, who's a, really a hero in public health and global health, has serves, also serves on the board at Washington Hospital. He's um, retired. Um, just this last week, and we didn't have time to get it into the um, packet for you. Um, and um, I've taken on the role of interim medical director at, at Newark um, until we can onboard the new ACMO and, and figure out if someone else should be in that role. So um, as Heather said, you know, we're continuing to have a lot of vacancies um, in leadership at the local clinic sites. Um, and a lot of us who are in the system-wide leadership roles are doing a lot of, of coverage locally, um, which is, you know, definitely, definitely a challenge, definitely impacting, you know, our ability to, to invest in some of the initiatives that, you know, that we prioritized here at the board. But we're really hopeful around the new ACMO starting, and, um, and um, you know, I'm hopeful also that we'll be able to fill um, – some of these roles with both internal and external folks who are um, who are really talented. Um, this is Mark. Uh, just a quick question: uh, with these vacancies, uh, the vacancies to be filled, uh, person or persons who are uh, persons or persons who are interested in this position uh, would have to uh, uh, would have to wait for an actual. Um, uh, job to be actually posted by the county, is that correct? So at, we're Alameda Health System, it's a separate entity from the county, and the positions are posted on the Alameda Health System website. Um, so I know that the, um, uh, if, they, if they haven't been posted already, they will be posted very soon. I know some of them were previously posted, the Hayward position had already been posted. I know that I've seen evidence for the Eastmont um, 
what happens within our system is we have an internal post first and then they get posted externally. So we might be somewhere in that process for each of those. Okay, thank you. You can check the Alameda Health System website and see all current openings for external candidates. Internal candidates can still apply once they're posted externally. Okay, um, Heather, the, the new, um, I don't know exactly what his position title is, but the young man that is back with the homeless health care that worked with uh, the van before. What's his oh, name? Lafayette, our assistant practice manager. Yeah, okay, so is he doing that now, correct? Yes. So he's supporting Wanda? Yes. Oh, okay. And, and Dr. Hall and Dr. Flagg. Okay. It'd be nice to meet him. I think the board should meet him. Thank you so much. I will uh, let him know, and we will work out a time when he can come and uh, talk to y'all. We'll have yeah. a we'll we'll organize a mobile health presentation. I think it's it, we're due. Like yeah, and and Wanda too. Wanda said she she wouldn't mind coming back at all to speak with us. So I it's really nice to hear from. The hands-on person what's going on you know I know my meeting with her was just fabulous yes so much to share um, I know that we have um, we, in, in looking at agendas ahead I'll be working with Damon on the next couple of agendas um, <laughs> we want to make sure that we don't over fill them for you and right. keep them well paced and I will include that on an upcoming agenda fantastic Okay, we don't have any public comments tonight, do we, Heather? Well, I think we need to ask our public oh. people. There are a couple of public members. We actually oh, we do. Have some I'm sorry. I couldn't. I didn't know that. Sorry. Yes, today. Yes. Would any of the public like to make a comment tonight? Okay. How about um, our co-applicant board members? Any comments? Okay, guys. I'm sorry. I just this is Dinah. I was trying to oh, hi, make a comment, but I had my phone um, awkwardly positioned. I just wanted <laughs> to say uh, thank you um, for the information. It's very, very informative, very insightful, and and I'm glad to uh, be a part of the group, learning new ideas and resources to support the uh, palliative care uh, department. Yes, definitely. That's awesome. Anybody else? Okay, then we can officially adjourn. The time is 7.14. Thank you all so much um, for um, the meeting tonight.